uh, the redemption of not only our physical body, but as you remember, we have looked at so many future events, uh, the coming of Christ uh, and all, as, all that it does as it relates to you and to me. And remember the last time we really got a handle on, on the concept of predestination. And I told you how that, uh, that uh, teaching uh, is a tremendous uh, misapplication of Scripture. We now better have a handle on where it came from, how it started, and all that uh, uh, it, uh, it got going. And we now know that the concept of predestination has nothing to do with salvation. Found in Romans chapter 8. In fact, I told you that the word predestination itself is only found four times in the Bible. And uh, the other places is in the book of Ephesians. And we now know that predestination has nothing to do with you being saved. But rather, predestination has to do with the fact that once you get saved, that you are predestined to get a body uh, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's things like this that I, I really want you to learn, uh, more so much probably than, than the book of Romans. I mean, I can teach you the book of Romans, and you can grasp that, but you've got to see how some of these component things work together. And once you see that, once you understand that the word predestination in Romans is in Romans 8, and Romans 8 deals with the redemption of your body, not your salvation, you begin to see how that that's how you use your Bible, that you don't get messed up. That's where bad doctrine comes from. You couldn't find a person who believes in predestination and teaches the election of God. He couldn't break down the book of Romans for you if somebody put a gun to his head. And there lies the problem. And this is why I'm such a stickler for you on learning the Bible. This is why in our Saturdays coming up, I want to really focus on putting those components together. And I'm telling you, if you want to learn the Bible, I'll give you a, an introductory course, a foundational course in it that uh, you will build on the rest of your life. And it really will be the key to putting it all together of what you're getting through Thursday night and our one-on-ones together and, and, and Sunday morning and all the things that go along with that. We've seen now from Romans chapter 8, uh, it's been a very informative chapter. We've seen where uh, we've laid out many, many major doctrines. We talked about the rapture of the church, the millennial reign of Christ, predestination. A lot of them were, were good doctrines, and yet we also looked at the bad doctrine that you find in these great chapters. But today we're going to pick it up in the last set of verses. And these are, to me, some of the most key verses in understanding Romans chapter 8 and putting it all together. And I think you'll see why today, at the end of our time today, why I believe that Romans chapter 8 is probably the greatest single chapter in the Bible as it relates to you and to me. But let's pick it up here in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Father, we ask you today to meet with us. We ask you to take these uh, principles here in this great passage and put it into our hearts. Those that are here today, Lord, for the most part, they want to learn your word. I really believe that for the most part, the men and women that have gathered here today really want to be used of you. And Lord, I pray that you will, you will take them and use them and mold them uh, as you see fit. Use this message to uh, ignite an excitement in their heart about the things of God, to help them keep those uh, things in their, in their vision, Father, that God has for them to do. Help me to lay this out clearly and plainly today, and may they go from here today, Lord, with a greater understanding of probably the greatest single chapter uh, that is responsible for uh, what we or what we will not get at the judgment seat of Christ. Help us with our attitudes today. Help us with our, our, our mindset, with our priorities, and help us to really look deep within ourselves, Father, to apply what needs to be applied today in all of our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now these verses, verses 31 through 39, are what I call summation verses. You're going to find in the Bible, and you need to put a little note of that there by verse 31, uh, because these last nine verses, or eight verses, these last eight verses are really him summing up what we've just looked at in chapter 8. And I don't know if you were paying attention or not, and here's another thing you always want to look at. You've heard me tell you many, many times how important questions are in the Bible. Many people look at, because they don't look at the Bible as a supernatural book, they just look at the Bible as a normal a book like they would do anything else. They don't put it under the critical examination of, of looking at everything in that, of, of what it means to you and to me. And I've told you before that uh, just as important are the statements in the Bible, also just as important are the questions in the Bible. Questions in the Bible will demand an answer. Somebody is going to have to answer the questions that God asks. I've told you before that uh, you're going to find at the great white throne judgment that where God is going to ask some men some questions and some unsaved people questions. And you find over there back in the book of Job, you find where, where those questions are. I found over the years that every profession a man or a woman can get in, that they stay in an unsaved state, and they think that maybe their education or their profession or, or what they believe or uh, what they've learned through the years uh, and how, what they've associated as truth and, and many times discounting the Word of God, I, I realize in a better way what the great white throat judgment is going to be. It's going to be a time where every unsaved man and every unsaved woman has to justify uh, what, they, what they've done and how they've lived their lives and how they've rejected God in the Bible. And you're going to find, I found it coming through the Bible, a series of questions that God could ask every person no matter what, what their career was or what they've done in their life. And somebody is going to have to answer those questions. Uh, God said to Job, he says, he says, Gird up thy loins now like a man, for I demand of thee an answer. And God demands an answer to his questions in the Bible. I think it's an interesting thing to find uh, the first question in the Bible. First question in the Bible wasn't asked by God. The first question in the Bible was asked by the devil. You ought to see what that question was. Then you ought to go and see what the first question God asked was. 
It starts to set the whole premise of how the Bible flows all the way through. I've told you before that as a Christian, we're going to stand to the judgment seat of Christ. And back in the book of Job, there's, there's six questions that God is going to ask you and I at the judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to have to have some answers. I'm going to have to have some answers. Questions in the Bible are very important. Now, these I don't know if you have come through this or not when I came through it, but you do see that there's, in this passage I just read, there's seven questions asked. There's seven questions asked. And there's seven questions that God asks uh, coming down through this chapter. And where these questions don't deal with the judgment seat of Christ, these questions don't deal with, with anybody at the great white throne judgment. These questions are aimed at you and me as Christians right now as we live on planet earth after you have been saved. In other words, these are questions that you have to answer right now. Now there's another set of questions you're going to answer at the judgment seat of Christ. But right now... Faced with the greatest single chapter probably in the Bible for you and for me, that he has laid out some incredible concepts. Now, he's asking you some questions about it. And I, what I want to do today is I want to, I, 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 want to, I, I want to talk to you about these seven questions. Because it's these seven questions that really deal uh, with our purpose on planet Earth. This is why, and we talked about last week, about being soldiers. And I talked about you standing for Christ in the face of opposition. And opposition will come. I took you through and showed you uh, through our little mannequin display here of, Dr., of John R. Pons, uh, a D-Day veteran, how to read the ribbon bars on somebody's chest and understand exactly uh, how that is. And then I took you back to the Old Testament and showed you in the book of Joshua that before the nation of Israel got their inheritance, that there was, a, there was a reaccounting of the battles that they'd been in. And I ended last week's sermon by telling you that, you know what? You don't want to go to the judgment seat of Christ without some campaign ribbons on your chest. You don't want to meet God at the judgment seat of Christ without showing the proof. And I showed you on Mr. Pond's uniform how you can read and tell where that soldier has been, what battles he fought in, whether he was an infantryman, whether he, it all means something. And for you and for me, as a child of God, in the battles that we have to fight, you and I best better have some combat ribbons on our, on our uniform before we go to the judgment seat of Christ. And this is the reason. These seven questions deal with the hardship that we talked about, where you and I are an endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is where it all comes down. This is where it all begins to make sense for you and for me. This is where the reality of it is in verses 31 through 39. The enduring of hardness as a good soldier. This is what you'll face. And this is how you maintain the victory in the midst of battle. You know, there's a great verse over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which has always been one of my favorite verses ever since I found it. It simply says this. We don't have time to get into it this morning. Once we're finished with the book of Romans, I'd like to teach... Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, back to back. I think it would really help us. Or maybe 2 Corinthians first and then 1 Corinthians, I don't know. But they, I think those are very beneficial books where we're at and what we're trying to accomplish. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I found this verse a long time ago, and it's a great verse. And it simply says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. That's a great verse. That verse says that there should never be a time in your life and my life that we don't have the victory in Christ. 
Now you say, how do you do that? You say, how in the world do, does somebody do that? Now that verse says that, it, that we should always be in triumph in our Christian life. And yet you know as well as I do how hard that is for all of us. But yet the Bible wouldn't tell you to do it if it wasn't possible to do. And that's, that's, that's what we want to talk about today. The answer to the victorious Christian life. The answer to you always triumphing in Christ Jesus is found in Romans chapter 8, in particular, answering these seven questions which are asked based on what he's already given us in Romans chapter 8. Now, I talked to you uh, throughout the book of Romans how that Romans chapter 8 deals with the two adoptions with you and me as a believer. The first one is a spiritual adoption. That's the day you got saved. We were adopted spiritually into God's family. You should remember this now. And then the main focus is on the redemption of our body. How that there's, the events are coming and unfolding around us right now. That as once you were adopted spiritually the day you got saved, there's coming a time when you're going to be adopted physically and you're going to get your glorified body. Somebody asked that question on Bible study Thursday night, and, and we talked about it and went through that and, and laid that out uh, that uh, you could better have an understanding. But we also laid it out when we got into Romans chapter 8 in those particular passages. Now, looking at Romans chapter 8 and thinking about the victorious Christian life, that we should always triumph, and looking at these seven questions that we're going to start to go through here in just a moment, I want to I give you this key to Romans chapter 8 because I think it's very important. I think in our Christian life, everything that we do, this is certainly true of what's being said in Romans chapter 8, but I think it goes beyond that. I think everything in our Christian life, everything in our Christian life needs to be viewed and kept in perspective in the light of Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. I think that these two verses are the key to the chapter 8 itself, but I think it's also key to your keeping your focus in the Christian life. And you remember when we came through it. I want to read it again for you in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. It simply says this. And then if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. And then here's the great verse. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If Romans chapter 8 does one thing, if these two verses accomplish or should accomplish one thing in our lives, it should keep our lives in focus and in perspective of the fact that no matter how bad it gets, based on Romans chapter 8, no matter how intense the battle becomes, no matter what transpires in our lives or what things befall us in life, the thing that you always have to keep in mind that everything that you and I are going through right now in perspective of Romans chapter 8 is simply temporary. This is not the real deal. Right now is where we ought to be digging in, holding the line, digging in deep and fighting the fight, knowing that we are a rear guard action. We are God's people in the last moments or the last minutes or the last seconds or the last days that we are holding together till Christ comes back. The thing that we don't want to do, and yet it's happening all around us, the thing that we never want to happen in this church 
is that we ever get satisfied and complacent and ever get off our focus where we think that what we're living right now is really life. It's only temporary right now. The real deal for you and I is coming down the line when the events transpire that we see God's program go into full uh, flourishing and accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We're not there yet. God has a plan. We're somewhere in that plan. But this part of our lives from Genesis right up to now has all been uh, preparatory. It has all been there to get it ready to go that God can do what He really set out to do. And you and I can't ever lose sight of that. You and I can never afford to lose our perspective. We have to see and understand God's plan. It's all temporary. Don't get sidetracked with the side events of life. Don't take something that is valueless, if it's God's concern, and make that the number one value in your life, and take the number one value in your life that is God's value and make it valueless. Boy, that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. And this is why, you know, it's so important to begin to see God's plan and keeping your focus. That's why, as far as I'm concerned, taking all you young ones that really want to grasp the concept, it starts with understanding how the Bible goes together. It starts with you being able to look at that book and see that book as it really is. Not in a book form. But in a plan, in a schismatic, in a, in a, in a, like an architect, uh, detailing out in every detail of what he's trying to build. That's the way you've got to learn to look at the Bible. And we have got to be able to take you and do that. You know, I want to, down the line, I want to take some of the guys here that really have an aptitude for laying out certain areas of the Bible. And we talked about having that that roundhouse all day long where we start like at nine and go to three with a lunch break in between and we just go from class to class to class where you get a, a complete understanding of the major uh, concepts of the Bible but you know what we can't do that until you first understand how the Bible goes together itself because that's getting the cart before the horse that's giving you the, 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 the food to eat before you set the table and have something to eat it on and we've got to get this done first. And then we'll get to the other. Now these seven questions are, are asked in the light of verses 17 and 18. And it's also written in the light of what we've learned in Romans chapter 8. If you're going to seriously consider giving your life to God, if you're going to seriously take serious, and I know not everybody does, but I'm talking to those of you who, who are. If you're going to seriously consider giving your life to Christ, then you must understand what I'm about to say today. And you must understand these seven questions in light of where you're at since God saved you. I told you last week, and it's a true statement, and I, I, it's one of those statements that you hate to make, but it's a reality statement. This time next year, some of you won't be here. I wish you would, but you won't be. Just like this time last year, there were people that were here that aren't here today. It's a, it's a hard concept to grasp. But the reality of it is, that's what we're doing in the ministry, and that's just the way it goes. People come and people go. People that were here a year ago are not here today. People that are here today won't be here next year. 
And it's not a matter of what their excuses are why they go. That's never the issue. That's never the issue. In every case, it's simply, the, the answer will be a twofold answer. One, in the course of this year to next year, some of you will lose your focus that you have today. Right now, today, the Bible is very important to you. You want to learn it. You want to read it. But a year from now, it won't be as important as it is. Hey, I have people that come in to this church that maybe are struggling with some things, and they'll say, man, you know what? I really want to do it right and serve God and, and bless their hearts. They can't even make it two months. Something pulls them back. And you have others that make it six months, and then something pulls them back. Then you have some who make it a year, maybe two years, maybe three years, and then something pulls them back. How does that happen? How does a man or a woman really get saved? And I'm not questioning their salvation. You know me. I don't think that anybody in the world is saved but maybe me and Zach. And sometimes I worry about Zach. <clears throat> I'm not one of these guys who believes that everybody who says I'm saved is truly saved. I, I've been around this game a little while. I know the world that we live in and how easy it is to get saved. Or as you think you get saved. But I'm, the people I'm talking about... I believe they're, people that I've dealt with, I believe they're really saved. I believe that they really have trusted Christ in their own person. I'm not talking about people who have made a halfway. I'm talking about people who at one time loved God, loved the Bible, loved everything about God, would, would, wouldn't miss a time the Word of God was taught for anything in the world. And then what? There comes a time in their life when something else is more important. Did the Bible change? How does that happen? It happens twofold way. One, people lose their focus. What you love today, maybe you won't love as much next year this time, being God and the Bible. People lose their, they lose their focus. And then people lose their perspective. What was important to you today may not be important to you next year. You may find, you may find, uh, just like in many relationships, and I'm not saying this is wrong because everybody needs to find where they're at in a relationship, but you find boy, men and women who get into a relationship. They go for six months, eight months, a year, and then one or the other says, you know what, this isn't for me. I don't want to do it anymore. It's not that you're a bad person or maybe you are a bad person. It goes both ways, but the bottom line is I can't do this anymore. And what happens is, what happens? What happened to two people that started out seemingly to have everything in common, started out loving everything in the world and doing it, but then something transpires? Well, that same concept of losing the, the relationship that you had and it comes to the place where it cools off is what most of God's people do with God. Now, I can understand that in relationship with people because that's life and that's what makes the world go around, but I don't understand that with God. I realize in our relationships that happens. And that's just a way of life, and you have to accept that. That doesn't mean anybody's bad or anybody's good. That's just the, what makes the world go round. But with God, I don't understand it. How do you lose that perspective? How do you once love God and the Word of God that you can't, you can't have a day go by without being in it? How, how do you get to the point in your life where you're so excited about God? You see people saved. You actually have God use you to bring other people to Christ. 
and then suddenly it cools off and you don't care anymore. The true reason, my friend, is perspective and focus. And I'm going to say it to you again. If you're going to seriously consider giving your life to Christ, then you must understand what I'm about to say today because if you're going to make it, if you're not going to become a casualty, if, if you're going to make it, the only way you're going to make it is that you bolt down cement in steel girders and steel beams with lead, your perspective and your focus, that you never lose it in what you're trying to do. Because the moment it goes, you're on your way out. You're on your way out. I've had people say to me, you know, so-and-so, they're not coming back to church. Told me last week they weren't coming back. My answer is, so-and-so left two years ago. Just because their body was here means nothing. They left two years ago. You see, we get so caught up in the fact that because we see somebody here, that that means they're here. God never looks at it that way. Never looks at it that way. And that's just the way it goes. That's just the way it goes. Now let's look at these seven questions. And let's help put them into perspective in your life and my life. Because these are key. And these are the questions that you have to answer and I have to answer right now in this life. Now let's look at question number one. And it's found in verse 31. He simply says this. What shall we say to these things? I love that. He just gave you the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. That tells you why God saved you, tells you how He saved your soul, and now He's going he's to give you a glorified body that you're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ with Him. He basically laid out God's plan, where you fit in, what He wants to accomplish in your life. He has given you the inside information of why He saved you. You could better now understand why He put you where He put you into this church. You can better understand now why He gave you the Bible that He gave. He has something for you. And now you have been faced with everything in chapter 8 that talks about the redemption of your body, talks about the redemption of your soul, the adoption that God has for you, the great things in eternity, the plan of God that He has. And after He lays that out, the first thing in summation He says is simply this. What are you going to say to these things? You know what you're going to say? You're going to say yes or you're going to say no. It's that simple. Don't we like to make Christianity so complex? Don't we like to blame it on somebody else all the time so we don't have to face these questions? Don't we like to say, well, I don't like this or I don't like that or so-and-so this or so-and-so that and, and, I, and that's my reason and that's my, and that's my... You know what? The bottom line is this. In light of Romans chapter 8, what he's done, what he's done for you, what he's given you, and what he has for you, the answer is simple. What do you say to these things? Are you in or are you out? Yes or no? You know, life is an ongoing process of making decisions, isn't it? Making choices. And I've watched this thing for many, many, many years. There's not a lot of things that I'm an expert in, but I would classify myself, and if you think I'm bragging, that's your problem, not mine. I have to be an expert in something. I can't be like, not know anything in my life. I pride myself on the aspect of knowing people. I pride myself on the aspect of being in this business for many, many, many years. 
seeing every scenario, every circumstance, one of the greatest things that I've ever done in my life, and it's something that I try to get you to do. It will help you more than anything else you can do. The greatest thing that I ever did in my life was make the decision that I'm going to get involved with people's lives on a one-on-one basis where I get into their world and share their problems. I've got to see every mistake a person can make. I've got to see people who made bad, terrible mistakes and made a way out and did what was right. I've seen people who had issues that they didn't want to deal with. And I've watched them blame those issues on somebody else because their pride would not let them deal with what they deal with. I've dealt with people and talked to people that, that put, on a, uh, put on a super flurious outward appearance that I'm a real Christian. And they want to project to everybody, look how spiritual I am. Look how, look how much I know about the Bible. Look how I, I, God is really, I really want to love God and learn God. And you know what? And you find out later on that, that their whole life has been a sham, running from one place to the other with the FBI right on their trail and the IRS right behind them. You see, I never look at the outside. I've been told every lie in the world. And when somebody says, I really want to serve God, in my heart I'd say, hey, I hope so, but we'll see. Because the proof in the pudding is not what you say, but it's what you do after you say it. What do you say to these things? I've seen every mistake a person can make. I've made many of them myself, in my own life, in my own journey. I've seen people come to the place where that they, they you know, they, my goodness, they put on a front that they're so spiritual and yet their own children hate their guts. Wouldn't have anything to do with them. Their own children behind their back tell other people that, you know, how, how abusive they are in their lives. You don't buy anything you see on the outside. Stay with the stuff and prove the thing out. And that's what the Bible says, prove all things, doesn't it? But life is an ongoing process of making decisions and choices. You know what gets you and me in trouble? Bad choices. The start of your demise as a child of God. The start of you going back to the world. The start of you losing your focus. The start of you losing your perspective goes right back to the single fundamental thing that you and I have got to stop. Making decisions. Bad choices. Hey, if I got somebody that's got a marital situation, or they got financial problems, or they got this, or they got problem with their kids, you know what? I I got the answer. Somebody says, "Well, it's a long process to to fix this or fix that, especially if you you know you hurt your wife, you know, or you hurt your kids, or or whatever. You know, you don't fix that in a day. No, you don't. But I'll tell you what you can do in the next ten seconds to start the process. Stop making bad choices. Where you start? Did my veins pop out on that one? Got a camera phone. Next time it happens, get that. I want a picture of my veins popping out." I felt terrible when I got here this morning, but I'm really loosened up now. (laughs) Now, this is why, folks, and I'm just going to tell you again, I say it all the time. This is why I put such a horrendous emphasis with you on biblical principles. 
This is why I drill them into you all the time. This is why I'll stop in the middle of a sermon and lay it out for you. This is why on Thursday night Bible study, I'll give you the concept. That's why I did what I did on that scenario of biblical principles in your life. You know why? Because the only way you're going to get out of the mess you're in or keep from going back to that mess, stop making bad decisions. Start making decisions based on the Bible and the principles in the Bible. It's that simple. It's just that simple. A lot of young couples, they get into all kinds of problems. I think that I, in all of my life, and I, I, I'm thinking about this week, I, I look back even in our own church in the last six years, but I even thought back beyond that. And, you know, I always talk about how that the vital asset of this church, the greatest commodity we have are not only our children there, but the fact that of the young couples that God gives us. Now, that doesn't lessen the value of you older folks, which I'm a part of that system. It just is a logical hello. The older we get, somebody's going to have to take it over. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. But some people have never launched many rockets. But it's a thing where you have got to, re- and I watch this thing, and I, you've got to realize this. Sometimes people come in, and every couple that I've noticed in the last 10, 15 years of my life in dealing with people, almost without exception, if you start to peel back the layers of why they don't make it, if you start to look back and peel back the layers of why they don't make it, in almost every case, it goes back to some bad choices, and many, many times, if not most of the time, those choices are financial choices. You peel back the layers, and when you get right back down to it, you come right back to the fact that at some point in their life, they got so much burden on top of them because of bad choices, bad debt to the place where they'll never get out from under it. And you know what that does? That, that, that push weight. Anytime you have bad choices that linger with you, now, some of them you can make bad choices. You can get forgiven by God and go on, and there's no real, no real trail that follows you. No real burden. You just walk away from it. If you're a good old drunk, you can get saved tomorrow and quit drinking just like that. You're good. But, boy, you have something that you have sold your soul to, something that requires 90% of your attention that you should be given to God, but now you can't. Because you've got to give it to the IRS, or you've got to give it to this person, or you've got to give it to this bank, or you've got to give it to this. Let me tell you something. Those kind of bad choices put so much horrendous weight on your focus. It's like me going out to Lake Tacoma, looking at the other side and being a great swimmer and saying, oh, I'm going to really enjoy this nice swim. And I got my sight on the other side, and I'm going to start swimming over there. And I know it might be deep, but I'm a great swimmer. And boy, I'm going to swim. Let me tell you something. You may swim in over and back. Next time you try it, let's put 20 pounds of lead on each ankle. You may struggle through and get to the other side. Next time you go, let's put 100 pounds on each ankle. You better hold your breath because you're going to walk over from the bottom. The more weight you add, I don't care if you can see the other side. I don't care if it's right there. That thing's only 300 yards across. I can do that with my eyes closed. Maybe you can, but you can't do it with 100 pounds on each ankle. And many times that's what we bring into our relationship with Christ. And because we don't get the help, because we don't get what we need, 
Because we won't say, hey, I'm in a jam. Because we think that we can fix it ourselves. Hello? You can't fix it yourself. You keep making more bad choices that just put more weight on your ankles. And I don't care if you can see heaven on the other side. I don't care if the angels are over there plucking their harps. You're going to drown. If it's just 10 feet of water, you're going to drown. Got to get rid of those weight. You know how you get rid of that weight? Stop making bad choices. I've seen young couples and older couples and middle-aged couples and, and individuals make so many bad choices that they just simply bury themselves. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter what they know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how good they work with people. They have bury themselves and they lose their focus because now they got to give the time they were going to give to God to their job, to a business, to something they got to do to get themselves out of the mess they're in. And the truth of the matter is, they'll never get out of that mess. You know why? Because the more money you make, the bigger mess you'll get in. Because it isn't about more money. It's about bad choices! Did it pop? Good. Hey man, you didn't get the picture. You're done. You're done. Now I'm telling you, what shall we say to these things? Romans 8 showed us that, that, that all that God has for us, you understand that God has a plan, God's will for your life, better understanding of your part and what what's coming in the future. You have a better understanding of, of all that God has done for you. The process has now in Romans chapter 8 been clearly laid out for you. You know, I never want this church or any sermon I preach or anybody else in this church preaches that maybe doesn't deal directly with this, but at the end of the sermon, I don't want you, I don't want you walking out of here without being faced with that choice. What are you going to say to these things? What are you going to say to these things? That's the first question. What are you going to say to this? You know what you're going to say? Yes or no, in or out. When I was in the Army, we used to have a saying. It was a saying that had to deal with guys who got into combat versus guys who didn't want to get into combat. I can't tell you the whole thing because some of it's not family associated with. But it was simply went like this. You either get your blank in the grass or you get in the rear with the gear. Now, I can't tell you what the blank word was, but I'll give you a hint. It rhymed with grass. You ever hear that, Bill? All right, you want to tell them what it? No, you better not. You would. <laughs> you're either going to be on the line or you're going to be in the rear with the gear. It's yes or no. But the bottom line is, after Romans chapter 8, and he tells you exactly what he's done, what are you going to do now? What do you say to these things? Oops. What do you say? All right, well, that's enough on question one. Question two. You say, boy, I'm glad of that. <laughs> Hang on. No, you're not. <laughs> Question number two. I love this one. This is found in verse 31 too. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, the answer to that is a lot of people will be against you. So what? You know, the next thing that not only do the bad choices drown people out, but you know what really stops a lot of God's people from really getting into this thing? And I, I can more understand this, even though I don't. Because I, 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 but I, I'm more sympathetic to this, even though I'm not. 
But, I mean, the first question, I, I don't have any sympathy for you. I mean, after what he did for you and what he's got for you, if you can look at all that in Romans chapter 8 and look at that chart up there and see what God's got planned for you in eternity and come here any length of time and get even a little bit of grass of it and then you simply don't care, I have no sympathy for you. This one I have a little more sympathy for. But not much. Really, probably not any, but I'm just trying to be a nice guy today. You know the second thing God's people don't like to deal with? We don't like to deal with opposition, do we? We don't like to be ridiculed. We don't like people to say things behind our back and slander us. We don't like people to be malicious against us in, their, in false accusations. We don't like the bike backbiting that goes on many, many times. We don't like, but you see, that's where the real battle is. Did you ever read Paul's epistles? Did you ever go through there and list how many people were against what he was trying to do? Now, if there was any man who had the credibility of God on him that nobody could question, it was Paul. It didn't stop him back then. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is what it means when it said the during and hardness of Jesus Christ. And some of you won't pay that price. You know why? Because you're so fragile. You, you, you just don't function if your friends are, are mad at you or don't like you because you're going to take a stand for something that's right in the Bible. So you fold up like a broken accordion. Why? Because of the fact that you don't understand Romans chapter 8. Then it says, if God be for us, who could be against us? A thousand people could be. One time they came to Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, broke from the Roman Catholic Church, hated all of his life. They even rewrote history to try to damage him and malign him. And you know what? Somebody said to Martin Luther one time, Martin, don't you know the whole world's against you? You know what Martin Luther said? Good, then I'm against the whole world. At some point in your life, you've got to realize, yes, if you're going to do this, there's a price that you're going to have to pay. And sometimes it's with your friends. It's sometimes it's with people that once loved you who now hate you. I think the greatest example of this, if you want to go back and study it sometime, and I remember teaching you this when we first started our church, but it's in Ezra chapter 4. And it's a story back there of Zerubbabel who went back with Ezra after the 70 years captivity. And Jerusalem, we now know from our own studies, Jerusalem was the central thing of God's program in the Old Testament, much like your body and my body. It's Jerusalem where the temple was built. You've heard me say the analogy many times. In the Old Testament, is a literal temple. In the New Testament, there is no literal temple. Your body is now the temple. In the Old Testament, all the world came to the temple. It was the center of worship with God. In the New Testament, we take our temples to the world. But your temple, your building of God, your temple right here, your body, is the central point of your worship with God and your fellowship with Him. And that is the same. And we see back there that they want to go back. And I remember reading the story of Ezra going back at night. And he, he looks down, and Nehemiah did this too. They look down and they see all of the, where the temple was, laying in ruins. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple, and it's all laying in disarray. And I look at that and I think to myself, just like so many of God's people's life when I find them. And you know what they did in the book of Ezra and also in the book of Nehemiah? They began to rebuild. And they don't start, you know what many of you are doing in your life right now? Many of you have made some bad choices in your life. Many have made some bad decisions in your life. But you paid the price. You bellied up to the bar. You took it, responsibility for it. And when you had an easy out, you took the hard way. 
And you said, I'm going to make it work. I'm not going to stick another person. I'm going to do what I got to do. I can appreciate that. But you know as well as I do, when many of you come back and your life is in rubble and you clear off the thing and you start to rebuild that temple just like they rebuilt it, let me tell you, and you can go back and read it on your own, but in chapter 4, verse 1, when they begin to rebuild that temple, you know what the Bible says? The moment they start to build, the adversaries show up. You know who the adversaries are, don't you? They're the people who don't want them to rebuild God's temple. And I'm going to tell you something this morning. There's some people in your life. There's some people that maybe are your friends. There's some people maybe in your family that don't like you building your temple for God. Now, I want to look at this thing for just a second, and we're not going to turn back there, but, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you. The Bible says that they have one goal. One goal. And that goal is to stop the building process. And the Bible says in chapter 4, verse 4 of the book of Ezra, it says the first thing they did was weaken their hands. The second thing they did was trouble them in building. And the whole reason they weakened their hands and troubled them in building was to frustrate their purpose. Hey, you, God saved you for a purpose. And the world and many unsaved people want to frustrate that purpose in your life to keep you from building that temple. What are you going to say to these things? You know what Romans chapter 8 has laid out for you. What do you say now? What are you going to do? The devil will use lost people and the devil will use saved people to do this. Some of the most wicked people I have ever met in my life are people that are going to go to heaven with us for eternity. There's a verse back in Proverbs. I think it's in Proverbs chapter 13 where it says, it, I'm going to have to paraphrase it now, but it talks about somebody who hates the Word of God. Somebody that hates the Word of God to such a degree that it is their undoing or something like that. You know what? The greatest example I ever met of a person like that was a saved man. A saved man. Could you imagine that? I mean, to read that verse of somebody that hates the Bible, hates the Word of God, and wants to do everything to undo it, and you'd think it would be a lost, drunk, fornicating, dope addict. No! It was a saved man who was a pastor of a church. Incredible. 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 Let me tell you something. The devil will go to great lengths to stop you. I've never met, I never, I never saw anything that an unsaved person couldn't do, that a saved person couldn't do, except die and go to hell when they die. Whatever wickedness that an unsaved person can do, if a saved person puts his mind to that or her mind to that, they can lie, they can cheat, they can, they can stab you in the back, they can do everything that the adversaries do because God will use, or the devil will use, anybody he can. Now, I, I, coming down through here, and I'll just give you this, and you can look it up on your own, because we're going to move through here. But there's four ways that they did it. Now, see, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against it? That's your second question. And the answer is, there'll be a lot of people against you, but so what? You know, the first thing they did down there in verse uh, uh, 52? They come in and they said, oh, we want to help you build. We want to be part of your church. We want to work with you. And the whole purpose 
of coming in and working with them was to stop the work of God and frustrate the purpose and keep God's program from going on. You know the second thing they did? Bible says in verse uh, 5 of chapter 4, they hired counselors against them. You know the next thing they did in verse 1? They, they, they made false accusations against them. The fourth thing they did is they spread rumors and half-truths in verses 11 through 14 and lied. Everything. Everything. Now, I'm gonna, I said all that to say this. The first question was, what do we say to these things? The second question was, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the real answer to that is, I gave you was lots of people, but the real answer to that is, who gives a flip? When you and God are the majority and you're doing what God wants you to do, what in the world do you care what people think about you and say about you? Where is your guts? Where is your standing? I hope not if you were and your wife were downtown eating someplace and you were going out to the car. It was kind of a secluded parking lot. And some mugger came up or somebody came up and tried to assault your wife. Would you just stand there and say, don't do that. Hey, 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 time out. Go over here in the corner. What, what if somebody attacked you? Say you're downtown walking by yourself and somebody comes out of the bushes and just jumps you and, or somebody comes up and grabs you and says, give me your money. Are you just, are you going to, now I'm not saying, please, uh, don't try this at home. I'm not saying, for, don't get killed over a dollar. But you know what? There comes a time in your life if somebody's going to kill you anyhow and you know it. I mean, somebody takes you, kidnaps you and says, we'll let you go for the ransom money. Do you really think they're going to? I told both my daughters. I think I told you this before. I said, you know what? If somebody tries to get you in their car, somebody tries to kidnap you in the car and they say they're going to shoot you or kill you if you don't get in, run. Scream and yell. You know what? Let them, let them. At least choose how, you may get shot, you may get stabbed, but at least choose how you're going to die because you know what? If you get in the car, you're dead. He may miss you. He may not be a very good knife thrower. He, 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 you, you, you have a chance outside. When you're in, you're dead. Don't let fear and intimidation kill you. Be man enough to choose how you're going to die yourself. You got a camera phone because he's letting me down. You need one with a telephoto lens on it all. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I told you last week the great, the great, uh, the great word for the 506 who was down at uh, Tycoa in Georgia with that mountain, Kurahi. The name meant stand alone. Now here's what you got to do. I love people. I love people with all my heart. I'm a people person. God has made me that way to give me the ministry that he has, that, that I give what I have to give to people to help them. But I have also balanced it out in my life. And this is going to be hard to say. Don't take this wrong. Because you know I love you. And you know I do anything in the world for you. And I know that you love me. But at the end of the day, you know what? I don't care if you love me or not. And I say that, but if you would all get up and say we don't love you, I'd be over in the corner crying for a little while. We all want to be loved. But at the end of the day, you know what I've done? I've balanced it out. I've balanced it out and got it firmly. I've answered the questions, what do you say to these things? 
Because I love you, and I want you here, and I want you with me, and I'll do everything in the world to get you everything in the judgment seat of Christ. But at the end of the day, if you all want to go someplace else, then I will carry he and stand alone. That's what I got to do. I have balanced that with my loving, kind, sweet nature. I have balanced that with my people, person, personality. People, person, personality. It was a one-eyed, one her and fire and people, personality. Well, I don't fit. Does it? You know that song, don't you? They don't know it. These people are here. They don't know. Want to give up and give them a little rent? No, we better not. <clears throat> Stand alone. You got to get to the place in your life. If that's where you are and that's what you're faced with, then that's what you do. Don't let your friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or some friend that you have or some family member, don't let them pull you out. If you know the Word of God to be true and you know God's Word to be established and you know God has called you to a purpose, stand alone if you have to, but stand. There will be times in your life when you better be able to stand by yourself because God just may put you in that circumstance. You may find yourself in a scenario where you have no friends, you have no family, that you're in a situation where it's you and God. You can't get on a phone and call somebody to solve your problem. you got to learn to balance it out. But deep down inside you, if God is for you, who can be against you? And so what if they are? You know what you always got to ask yourself? When I start to feel that way, and I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that my emotions are made of steel. Things people say hurt me just like they do you. But the bottom line is this. You know what? When I start to feel that way, first thing I ask myself, Well, Bob, who are you doing this for? Yourself or me? And I say, Lord, I'm doing it for you. Well, then shut up and get back on the line. Yes, sir. Third question. Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Here it comes. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now simply put, here it is. If God saved you folks, then God's going to get you equipped to do the job. If there was a purpose in God saving you, then there's a purpose for you after you get saved. That verse says... What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who's against us? And then it goes on to say that if God spared not his own son, but delivered him for us, how shall she not follow through with it and give you and me everything we need? And the answer is he will. God will give you and God will equip you with everything you need to get the job done for him. That's the job of the New Testament local church. That's why we preach the way we preach on Sunday morning. That's why we do what we do on Thursday night. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, you got a great lesson last Thursday night. If you were here when the young man came in, William. And you got a great lesson the other night of how important it is for you to know church history. How important it is to know exactly where you're at in that Bible when it comes to somebody going to question the, the validity of the Word of God. 
When somebody is going to throw out the questions to you that he threw out to us, where he's asking, and he obviously is a young man that, that believes the Bible is like any other book, and throwing those things out, and every time he threw something out, where did I take him? I took him to a place that he was not prepared to go because he had no understanding of history. You can't separate history from the Bible. You cannot. And that's why I pound it into you. You know what? If you were there Thursday night and you saw that, I got news for you. God wants to put you in the exact same scenario someplace. But what do you say to these things? In or out? Yes or no? Up or down? The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 that this church has a threefold goal. One, to perfect the saints. That's not to, that's not to make you perfect, but that's on a daily basis as to get you focused on the Word of God, focused on the things of God, looking at your own self, correcting the areas in your life that need to be corrected, and you perfect yourself on a daily basis. Once you get yourself perfected to a certain degree, then the next aspect I get you ready for, for the work of the ministry. Now, the next one is, the, is what we do in the work of the ministry. Because it says, perfecting the saints, once I get you ready, I teach you how to work in the ministry, and then the last thing, part of that is, edifying the body of Christ. That's what it's for. That's what I want. I want you to do for others what I'm doing for you. I told you last week, men equip me that I might equip you. I equip you that you might equip others. That's simple. It's just that simple. But the question is, what do you say to these things? See, that's the real question. Some of you have some great potential. But boy, you need some perfecting. Some of you, some of you you've got to work on your timing of element. You're late for everything. I, I, you know, we start church at, at 10.30. Some of you can't get here till quarter till. Boy, I guarantee you, if you were going to the Royals game, or you were going to here, or you were going there, and you had to be there at a certain time, you'd be there on time. I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying you can't be in charge of ministry and show up after everybody else is there. You can't do that. You have to perfect yourself that when you're in charge or you're in ministry or church is just as important as anything else you do. You can't forget responsibility when you have it. Somebody gives you to something to do, don't show up and say, oh yeah, I was supposed to do that. You have to follow through. You can't procrastinate. You've got to have control of your life. You can't let your life control you. You have to learn through the process. And everybody gets there. But you only get there when you answer the question, what are you going to say? Are you really going to take Romans chapter 8 and apply it to your life and say, you know what? If he did that for me, I'm going to give him everything he wants. And that's when you learn accountability and responsibility. That's when you learn to be disciplined. And along with discipline, you learn to be balanced. That's when you learn that the real way that you become a leader, contrary to what some people say, the real way you become a leader is to be a good follower. That's how you learn to lead. You learn discernment and perception. You come to the point that I always say to you, you always look behind, look around, and look ahead. There isn't any given scenario you don't in that you're not thinking outside the box of what you're dealing with. Don't get caught in that trap. The ability to always to adapt and adjust to any given situation. If God saves you, then God will prepare you. He'll give you those things freely. Question 4, verse 33. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. You know, the day you got saved, you got elected to get a glorified body. That's what the word election or elect means in here. Remember we're in Romans 8. The day you got saved, you got elected to get a glorified body and reign with Him throughout an eternity as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. There is no higher calling in all the world for you or for me. And we can never lose our perspective, our focus, or lose sight of that great truth. It's God that justified you. It isn't me. It isn't your wife. It isn't your husband. It isn't your boss. It isn't your best friend. It's God that justifies you. But before all of that, before you get to that point, before you get to the place where you get that glorification, we have our warfare. We have our mission. We have our cross that we must bear for Christ. We know that God's will, but God also has a plan. Don't let anybody intimidate you, saved or lost. Don't let anybody, as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, do not let anybody, don't let anybody steal your, take your crown from you. Nobody. 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 Remember, Bible Christianity separates before it joins together. The Bible says, and I heard some old preacher say this one time, dealing with, on a concept of separation. And a concept of separation is this. And I've told you this before. The biggest problem some of you have once you get saved is you can't separate yourself from your old friends. And you'll do it for a while, but then it'll start to creep back. You'll be here every Sunday, and then suddenly you'll miss a Sunday, then you'll miss a Thursday, and you always have a good excuse. Problem is, when you're in that mode, there are no good excuses. And pretty soon, you're right back where you were before, and you wonder why. By this old preacher said, you know what? He was preaching on separation. He says, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, those that God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And everybody went, amen. And he said, but I got, a, I got my own version of the second half of that verse. Just as God hath put together, let no man put asunder. And also, what God hath put asunder, let no man join back together. When God separates you from the world, don't get back with it. When you know there's people in your world, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, I don't care who it is. Don't let your, if you're a young guy here and you got a girl, don't let that girl take your crown from you. If you're a young gal here and you got a boyfriend, don't let that boyfriend take your crown from you. I don't care what it is. Wives, don't let your husbands take your crown from you. Husbands, don't let your wives take the crown from you. I'm not saying you divorce them, but I'm saying there's always something you can do to say, you know what, I married you and I love you, but if you think I'm losing my crown, I got something else for you. Oh, by the way, I love you, and I'm not going to ever leave you, and I'm going to stick with you, but I got one last thing to say. What is it, honey? Bam! Wake up! You're not taking my crown. Now, if your wife is the opposite, don't hit her. Sit the dog on her or something, but don't hit her. Can't go around hitting women. You got to choose. You got to choose. Sometimes your friends. Sometimes your job will do it. You see, you got to have the balance. You got to have the balance. You've got to have the ability. You've got to have the ability to know that when there are certain things in your life as a Christian, you just can't tolerate. And your first mistake, ah, your first bad decision, is thinking you can hang out with those people, go to those places, do those things, and it won't have an effect on you. That's your first bad choice. And down it goes from there. 
What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And what God hath put asunder, let no man join back together. That's a great piece of philosophy. Question number five. Who is this that condemneth? There's your question. Who is this that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is ever at the right hand of God, who, is also, who also maketh intercession for us. Now the question is, who is he that condemneth us? Well, let me tell you who it is. Got three sections here. The devil will. The devil's the first one who'll try to condemn you. He'll try to get you to feel guilty about something in your life that's already been forgiven for. He'll try to get people who won't forgive you when you, God's forgiven you to put that kind of guilt trip on you. The bottom line is this. You don't let that happen. It's God that justifieth you. If you're here this morning and you're saved, there ain't nobody and you made your peace with God, whatever dumb things you've done in your life, who is anybody out there that condemn you after it's under the blood? The devil. The devil. What good is getting saved and getting your sins forgiven? What good is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, if they're faithful just to forgive your sins, if God's people can hold it over your head all your life? Why do you let people intimidate you? See, the devil will try to do that. He'll try to put you on a guilt trip. It's impossible to put me on a guilt trip. It really is. I'm, you may try it on somebody else. It'll never work on me. You know what? I know what I give you. I know what the book says. And I know where your accountability is or where my responsibility is. I am a hard person for you to put on a guilt trip. Bottom line is this, man. Don't let people do that. The devil's going to try to do it. He's going to try to condemn you after you've already been saved. Unsaved people will do it. You know, unsaved people watch every move you make. You ever notice this? You ever notice? And I've seen this happen. I've seen this where there was... There was uh, uh, Couples that, that had lost family members. Some of you have lost family members. And you know how well they, how they watch you. You could be around with me and do some stupid stuff and I just wouldn't even think anything about it. You could be with me and I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story. My old buddy Peter Ruckman, he tells the story how that uh, he was preaching at a place with Bob Gray down in, down in Alabama. And uh, they were, uh, a preacher took them out to eat together. And there was this wannabe preacher in his church who was a, you know, a wannabe. Every church has got him. And he begged and begged and begged this guy to go out to eat with Dr. Ruffin and Dr. Bob Gray. So the pastor said, okay, come on, we're going to go out. They took him to a place that had all you can eat, and you could pick different things. Ruckman said, I got the, I forget what he got. But the other guy, Bob Gray, got all you can eat chicken. Ruckman didn't get all you could eat. He got something, I don't know what it was. But this guy got all you could eat. And so he goes back four or five times and gets some chicken. And No, I'm sorry, I would have went back four or five times. He went back two or three times, got some chicken, sitting down there. And at the, toward the end of the meal, the guy, Bob Gray, says to Pete, he says, how was your meal? Ruckman says, well, you know what, that wasn't, wasn't, wasn't bad. I thought it would be better than it was. I should, I should have got the chicken. And Bob Gray says, well, here, I'm not going to eat these pieces. Here's a couple pieces of mine. So Ruckman ate them. You know what that saved person did? He went around and told everybody how Ruckman stole chicken and didn't pay for it at the restaurant. Yeah, a saved, going-to-heaven person who was so jealous of Ruckman, so envious of Ruckman, who didn't have one toenail of the ministry Ruckman had. And all he can think about is 
stole two pieces of chicken. <laughs> That'll send you to hell. <laughs> Pete, I had all this stuff for you down here by two pieces of chicken. <laughs> you got unsaved people in your family. They watch everything you do. I've known couples that were in this church that tried to get their unsaved people to play softball, and they played volleyball, got them to come out, you know. I've watched it for years. I've watched people, you, you try to do everything you can to, to win your lost people to Christ. But you know what? They watch everything you do. And where you and I will go out someplace, and like the chicken thing, if we went out to a chicken place and you got something else and I got chicken, you know what I'd say? I'd say, have some of mine. Here, I'm hungry. I'll go get six more pieces. You know, you got big cargo pants on. Put the rules down inside to eat it when you go home. You paid for it. But you know what? Your unsaved folks and your family see one little thing you do. One little thing, which to us is a no-brainer. Big deal. And they're all over you, aren't they? See? Unsaved people will. And God's people will, too. Anytime I get feeling, every time I, I, every time I get feeling sorry for myself, and I, and I don't very often. I mean, if I took, if I, if I was, if, if, if I, if I took seriously, I, I looked one time, I think I told you this, sometimes type in Dr. Peter S. Ruckman on the computer, and what'll come up is 88 pages, with 20 things on each page, 88 pages of people who say some of the nastiest, godliest, ungodliest stuff you'll ever see in your life. Now, would you like to do that knowing somewhere on the website that it got you plastered? You know Brian Donovan? Brian Donovan's an associate. You know a man that used to be in Pete's church who didn't get along very well because they saw him for what he was? You realize he took a, a photograph of Donovan and then superimposed the photograph of Donovan into a bar with two girls on each side, brushed it out with Adobe Photoshop, and then put that thing all over the Internet that Brian Donovan was out carousing with the women uh, while he was working at the church down there. A saved man did that. A saved man going to heaven did that. My point is that that doesn't surprise me. I'm telling you, you better be ready for it. It's God that justifies you. Who is he that condemneth? Nobody can condemn you once you're under the blood of Christ and you've done what God has called you to do. You are clean and green to do what God wants you to do. Their purpose, their purpose is to weaken your hands and to frustrate the work of God's ministry. I remember years ago when I was just a young guy. The church I was at, we had a, a thing. I've told you some of this story before. The church that we had there, they had a, they had a deal where they had a, uh, <clears throat> kind of like a, uh, 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 on a Sunday night, they had different classes. And uh, everybody in the church, and there was like 1,500 people in the church, and everybody got to sign up for classes. I remember I was teaching the book of Revelation. There was a guy in that church there. He wasn't a pastor. He was one of the great spiritual Pharisees. I, I, some of you know who he is, so I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass who he was. But the bottom line is this. This guy, was a, he was an idiot. He was a Calvary Bible graduate. He was a Calvinist. And he thought he was the guru when it came to the spiritual things in the Bible. His specialty was the book of Daniel. He didn't know more about the book. My, I got two labs at home that know more about the book of Daniel when than he ever thought about knowing. But he was the big guru. And I'll never forget this. It's one of those sweet moments in time. I never take revenge, but there's sometimes God just serves it up to you in a dish. 
and you just got to do it. And I'll never forget. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you. He had, he had some kids, and all of his kids were out of control. He was a great spiritual guru, but his children hated him. He, he didn't know this, and this is why he didn't like me. Because his children were coming to me, because I was their youth pastor, telling me how he abused them at home. And the moment he got wind that I knew that I was the bad guy, see, because he doesn't like his children ratting on him because he wanted to have this polished figure for everybody, you know. And I, like I'm going to tell somebody, you know. And so anyway, well, I'm, up, I'm baptizing one, one, one Sunday night, and his wife says to me, she says, I just don't know how you ever raise your children without sending them to Christian school. And I said, you mean like yours that I just spent nine hours, six hours last night with your husband driving around town looking for your runaway boy? You mean that kind? Oh, 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 see? He didn't like that. We have these classes signed up. I'm teaching the book of Revelation. I got 228 people signed up for my class. He had three. One of them was his wife. He comes up to me. Now, this is, this, is, this, is the, this is the audacity of pride. He comes up to me and he says, Brother, I'd really like to help you. And I said, well, thanks, sir. I'd like to have help. I'm going to make the car payment next month and mail out the house payment. You know, he, said, he said, you know what? He says, can I give you a bit of advice? And he says, sure. He says, you know, you're never going to go far preaching the way you preach. He said, you need to go, you need to get some polishing on your preaching. He says, do you ever think about picking up some classes at Calvary Bible College? He says, and I'll tell you something else. He says, you, if you're ever going to be successful in ministry, you really need to study Greek and Hebrew. He says, now I know that you don't care for that, but he says, I'm telling you, that's where the real truth lies, and you need, you need to do that. He says, what are your feelings toward that? And I said, okay, I need polishing in my preaching. I need to go to Calvary Bible College, pick up some classes. Study the Greek, study the Hebrew. I got it now. Go to Bible college, get polished, study Greek, study Hebrew, and then I can run two in my class like you. <laughs> he didn't like that either. Don't ever be intimidated by anybody. If you're doing what God has called you to do, and you're right with God, and you're where God wants you to be, and you're preaching the truth, let them go pound sand. What do you say to these things? You see, this is where, this is why people won't, because there's going to be people who are going to try to condemn you. There's going to be people, and you, it, it, who is he that condemneth? The devil will, unsaved people will, and unfortunately God's people will. And the, all the purpose is, all the purpose is, is to weaken your hands and to frustrate God's building in your life. And don't ever forget, there are unsaved adversaries and there were in God's work and there were saved adversaries in God's work. All right, now, question chapter 6. In fact, 6 and 7 kind of go hand in hand. They're in verses 35 through 39, but I split them up into two questions. They're really uh, two questions, with, or, or one question, but then two parts of the question. They're in verses 35 through 39, but I split them up into two questions. They're really uh, two questions, with, or, or one question, but then two parts of the question. So I make them 6 and 7. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, verses 35 through 39, like I said, these are the last two questions, verses 6 and 7. But they're broken down, 35, 36, 37 will be question 6, and then 38 and 39 will be question number 7. So, and, and I know, I know, and if you're ever dealing with somebody, this is a great passage. 35 through 39 are great passages on eternal security. And I know that you already know that. But I, I want to show you what these passages are in a, in a great concept of our everyday warfare and our walk with Christ. Why in the midst of battle, while it rages all around us, while people will quit and fall on every side through the filth of Laodicea. Oh, by the way, how many saw the winner of the spelling bee this week, huh? And all together, what was the word that she gave her? Laodicea. Ah, Laodicea. Talk about God not being in everything. <clears throat> I mean, how'd you like to be? How'd you like? God gets his message out. That girl's going to go around the country. She's going to say, I won the spelling bee. I won a national spelling bee. Everybody say, what was the word? And she say, Laodicea. Now open your Bible, Revelation chapter 3, and, and let them have it, man. What an opportunity. Around here, I don't care if you can spell it, just as long as you understand it. Laodicea. L-A-Y-D-E-S-E-E. Y-A, Laodicea, I got it. (laughs) This question starts out like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see, the first question deals with the things in physical life. The things that he talks about that he asks the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ are things that people do to you or the world does to you. Look at verse 35. Tribulation, persecution, nakedness, Distress, famine, peril, sword. Those are all physical things. Paul faced those in his life when he went through his life. All of those things wound up being killed by the sword probably after 2 Timothy. And uh, boy, you see that thing, how, how it lays out. Those things are physical things. And that, of course, the next verse, verse 36, is a quote of Psalm 44, 22, which is the tribulation context. is dealing with Israel in the tribulation period being slaughtered like sheep for Baal sacrifices. We don't have time to get into that today. That would be a good Thursday night Bible study question, though. But you know what it says there? It says, if they kill us all the day long, so what? So what? Now, this is where, like I talked about last Thursday night, this is where the importance of church history comes in. That guy the other night, <clears throat> remember his question? <clears throat> he asked me, <clears throat> He asked me, how do I reconcile the fact that people in Christianity all down through history were murderers and killers and butchers and did things in God's name and the Bible's name that are horrendous things? And that was his question, one of his questions. And the answer I gave to him is this. I said, because there's a true line in the Bible. And I said, you know how you always can find the true line in the Bible? And I didn't go into all the detail. I gave him a simple answer. They put him right between the eyes. It separated everything he was saying from what the Bible said. Maybe you didn't catch it. I said, you know how you find the true line in the Bible? I said, the true line is willing to die for what they believe in Christ, but the true line is never willing to kill somebody else because they don't believe what I believe. You know, that's about as good a definition as you're ever going to find of the true line in the Bible. They're not, I'm willing to die for what I believe, but I'm not willing to kill you because you don't believe what I believe. Try that on a Muslim. Try that on a Roman Catholic. Try that on a Jehovah Witness. Try that, if they had the world control, let me tell you something, you'd all be dead. I wouldn't be because I'd be hiding in the mountain someplace. I'd have me a little rebel group. We'd come down and I was going to say we'd throw firebombs through the windows, but Jehovah's Witnesses don't have any windows in their church. You ever notice that? Do you know why? You know that too, don't you? You know why Jehovah's Witnesses don't have windows in their church? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me why? 
All right, I'll give it to you. Because they know that if it all goes down and they take the world, I'll be throwing firebombs in their windows. <laughs> Boy, they paid a price for it down through history. This is the great concept of the church triumphant, the church militant. You see, the church triumphant is the fact that they all knew what we're supposed to know in Romans chapter 8. They had answered the question. When they were faced with, what shall you say to these things? They said, kill us all day long if that's what it takes. We ain't going back. We ain't going back. They understood that there was a church triumphant on the other side. That's going to heaven, getting the victory. Never have to worry about this old world again. That's where it all really gets started. But they also understood before they got to the church triumphant, they had to go through the church militant. And that's the battle you and I are in every day right now. That's the battle that so many of God's people are conscientious objectors to. That's the thing that so many of God's people say, I'm done. I can't go on. I got so much burden on me. I can't, I can't focus on this and that. It's easier to focus on this than to, to do what God wants me to do. It's a shame, but there it is. There it is. And verse 37, and I love this. You had to mark this in your Bible. It says, for in, nay, in all these things, we are more. You ought to mark the word more. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know why he says we're more than conquerors? I mean, it would be enough just to be a conqueror, but we're more than conquerors. You know why? Because if you understand Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, you know that the more than conquering is not only you're going to overcome and you're going to conquer, but you're going to be a joint heir with him for all of eternity. That's the more than conquering. That'll keep you going. Well, the last question. Verse 38 and verse 39. Now this is still under the first question here, second part. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, for I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now these are the things where the first set of questions were the things the world does to you. These, this set of questions are the things the devil does to you. See? If the devil can't separate you from Christ eternally, then he's going to try to do it in your daily walk with Christ. Now, I, like I said, I know this passage is a great passage on eternal security, and I'm not taking it away from that, and I would use it any time I needed to, but I'm telling you, there's more to it than that, because this, this, nothing can separate you from God's love uh, as far as being saved, but boy, there are some things that can separate you from your fellowship. And verse 30 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities and powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature. Now let's look at those one at a time and give you a little something to study on this week. Death. Death can't ever separate you from God because when you die, you're going to heaven to be with Him. You know the passage you want on that? 1 Psalms 139 verses 1 through 24, the whole chapter. Read that this week. Put that note right there by that verse. The next thing is it can't separate you is life. No matter how bad your life gets, no matter how far you get away from God, God has promised to get you home. God will get you home with all the laurel and all of the rewards and all of the things that He has for you. He'll either get you home that way or He'll get you home in a wheelchair and a casket, but He's going to get you home. He's going to get you home in glory or He'll get you home in disgrace, but He's going to get you home. 
He's going to get you home with all the Adelaides and all of the great rewards that he could have, possibly have, because you gave your life to him, or he'll get you home naked as a jaybird standing before the judgment seat of Christ in shame and reproach. But he'll get you home. But what do you say to these things? What do you say to these things? Angels. Fallen angels can't stop you from getting there. Principalities and power. That's the devil and his world organization and his cronies in Ephesians chapter 6 because they wrestle not against flesh and blood but against powers, against principalities. Remember that thing? Then he says things present. That's the things you're going to face today. Things to come. You worried about tomorrow? Don't be. What the future holds for you can't separate you from God's love either. Height. Nothing above your head. Depth. Nothing below your feet. Or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Romans, and, and get, if you didn't get anything else about Romans 8, put this note someplace in Romans chapter 8 where you see it. Romans 8 puts the whole chapter into, con, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8 verse 31 through 39 puts the whole chapter of Romans 8 into context. And Romans chapter 8 puts the whole Christian life into context. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now, the question, we go back to question one. After laying this thing out in light of, in light of Romans chapter 8, what do you say to these things? See? It's easy. Christian life's not complicated. You like to make it complicated so you can sneak between the raindrops, don't you? You like to pump up the smoke machine so you can live within the smoke screen. You know what? Bottom line is simply this. Christianity, Romans chapter 8, nails it right to the, right to the floor. After light of all that God's done for you, He's adopted you spiritually, and He's going to adopt you. Uh, you are predestined to be adopted physically. He's got all this thing out here as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He shows you everything He's got for you, everything He's going to do. Put it in a proper context that you're going to have to stay in the fight down here, bear the reproach, lay the whole thing out for you, and then He simply says this. Hey, what do you say to those things, Bob? Are you with me or against me? You know what Jesus said over there in Matthew, don't you? He said, He that is not with me is against me. There is no middle ground with God. You're either in or you're out. You're either in or you're out. You're either going to do the different. I told you last week, three kinds of people in every church. There's some of you here who are young people that you want a ministry. You want a ministry and you'll do whatever you got to do to get to that point. Some of you here that are already ministering and you'll do whatever you got to do to make sure that you equip others as you've been equipped. And there's, every church has got them. There's some people that don't care anything about ministry. All they care about themselves. I don't know what to tell you. I just ask you the same question I got to answer. What do you say to these things? That's the question today. You see, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, God loving us, nothing. But we can separate ourselves from loving God. The problem isn't God, the problem is us. Life is choices. Life is choices. God made a choice to save you and unconditionally love you. He loves us through thick or thin, good days and bad days. It doesn't matter what stupid things we do. God is always willing to forgive and forget. It's God's people that have the problem with that, by the way. But God made a clear choice to save you and unconditionally love you. And through thick or thin, good days or bad days, and never stop loving you. Romans chapter 8 shows you and me that we also ought to love Him just like He loves us. Just as He had to make the choice for us, you have to make the choice for Him. But you know what He did? Guy asked the other question the other night. Basically, he says, how do you know God? How, do you, how can anybody be so conceited to say that they understand and they know God? 
How can anybody in all of the world say, I understand and comprehend a God who, who's as big as he is and as complicated as he is? How could anybody ever say, as mortal man, ever say that I understand God? Got my answer to him? My answer was this. You know what? You're absolutely right. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, his ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my ways. There's no way I can understand God. There's no way you can understand God. There's no way anybody in this room can understand God. So you know what God did? God wrote a book about himself so I could understand him. That's the answer. See? He loves you unconditionally. How about you loving him? Do you love him unconditionally or when it's convenient? Don't you, aren't you glad God doesn't deal with us like we deal with him? Aren't you glad that God doesn't forgive you like a lot of God's people won't forgive you? Aren't you glad that God unconditionally, He'll take you however He finds you and He'll always do what's right with you and whenever you're willing to do what's right, He's ready to take you back? Well, you can't get a bill for that. But my question is this, what do you say to those things? What do you say to those things? This is the determining factor whether you make it or you don't in Christianity. You have to stay focused. You have to stay, you have to stay focused and you have to keep your perception of where you're at. You can't ever, 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 ever get to the point where you lose your focus because the moment you do, the moment you lose your central focus of what God's got to you, I've seen young couples get married and you know what? Their focus of God just goes here. You know why? Because they're so focused on her or she's focused on him and God gets put out of the equation someplace. I see individuals where they get to the deal where that, you know, God takes care of, they get a better job or they get another job or they get this over here and suddenly God's focus on God is gone and now it's over here. I've seen people come to the place where they do well for a while and they really get excited about God. You know what? But they don't make the break with the old friends and slowly but surely they lose their perspective and they, lo- they quit loving the things of God and they start going back to loving the things of the world. That's why it happens. That's why it happens. And you know what the tragedy is? You know what the tragedy is? Most of you here this morning understand that. Most of you here this morning are doing what you need to do. It's the tragedy of every sermon. The ones who need to hear it are somewhere else this morning. Oh, there's an adversary out there, all right. He makes sure. He makes sure that if you don't get sped fiercely, you get fed by the things of the world. What do you say to these things? And that all is in light of the greatest chapter in the Bible that shows you what God has done for you. I, I can't, I'm like Joshua. I can't speak for you, but I know this. For me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Every family ought to have that up on your, picture, up on your kitchen someplace or in your room. Every time your child gives you a problem, if you're doing what you're right and you have quit making the bad choices, every time your child, every time somebody in your family has a problem and they don't want to do, don't want to go to church, don't want to do this, you know what? All you do is point to that and say, you know what? Did you think we put that up there because it matched the wallpaper? We put it up there because that's how we live. Now, you can stay or you can go, but that is the line right there. But you see, that creates conflict, doesn't it? Opposition, doesn't it? kind of ruffles the family a little bit. We just can't stand conflict. We will roll over and fold up before we'll stand and do what's right. Welcome to Laodicea. L-A-Y. See ya. Laodicea. Well, we're done this morning here. You can sign up for the uh, ball tickets back there uh, for uh, the Royals game.